All right, we have a couple of assignments coming up next week. We're done for this week. There's nothing else that's due to be uh, turned in this week, other than whatever lab we do on Friday, of course, in class. Um, we're still working on getting the computers reset, so I have two labs planned. One if the computers are fixed and we can do a Starry Night Lab, and another one if we're not going to do that. So prepare. We want to come in Friday and wonder if they're going to be worked, or to group you all around the two computers that are We'll let you log in. That'll be a little bit crowded to really try to get any lab done, lab work there done efficiently. Um, we do have a homework assignment on the planets coming up, coming up due on Monday. Uh, that'll be due next next Monday. We'll finish the planets. We'll get through most of it today, and then we'll finish it up on Friday, and be able to get off to start on the sun. Uh, you're speaking of the sun. Your second solar observation will be due next Wednesday. Again, I only need need one more for credit. But if you've got more than one, it's a good idea by now that we're, you know, uh, what, five, six weeks into the class. Uh, hopefully you've gotten, you know, three, four. You should be getting to the point where you're getting, you know, pushing towards halfway. Uh, you want to get about ten by November when the, when the assignment is due. If as long as you have at least one, you get credit here. But if you just do one, one, and one, you're going to be struggling for observations uh, come the end of the... Uh, quiz three will be available uh, the weekend uh, starting the 3rd, Friday the 3rd, and then uh, the second exam will be the 6th. Right now I have that scheduled for the 6th of October. That will cover chapter 3 that we just fin we finished up, chapters 4 through 8 that we're working on now as one unit. That's the section on the planets. And then chapter 9 on the sun. So we'll cover all, that'll be the material covered. And though I write it this way, not chapters 3 through 9, just to emphasize that they're equally rated. That's one-third of the weighted. That's one-third of the exam, one-third of the exam, one-third of the exam. So even though right now we're going through five chapters of the text, it's still equal weight to one of the other, one of the other chapters. Any questions on anything here? Yes, sir. Do you Let me more of the three yes, I do. Anyone else need one? No, no, no. You had a question too? Uh, the review sheet for four through eight, is it one sheet or is it one sheet for each chapter? It's one sheet total. It, it might be two pages worth, but it's one, it's one sheet for everything. Yeah, I'm printing that out. We're going to be able to use those on the next exam. Right? Yes, you can use those on the next exam as well. So you'll be able to use those three review sheets, the ones for three, four through eight, and nine, you'll be able to use on the next exam. Anything else? Alrighty, well, picture of the day for today. This is the Lagoon Nebula. Uh, we'll be talking about, talking about nebulae coming up here in just a couple of weeks. After we finish up the planets and the sun, we'll start talking about stars and then the birth of stars. And this is really where stars, stars form. And we're looking at here a lot of the gas and dust that forms in, that is around in this, in this area. And what happens is the very darker areas, see a lot fewer stars there. Really, there aren't any fewer stars. There's just as many stars there as there are here. This is just there's so much dust in between us that it blocks out all but the brightest stars. So only those few brightest ones are actually peeking through to allow us to see them. All the faint ones that we'd see here are completely hidden by the dust. But when stars form within this, this is where the denser dust is, and that's where the stars are going to form. When the stars actually form, they will 
eventually burst out of the cocoon. You get a very bright star beginning to burst out and form out of this little cocoon where they formed. And that will illuminate all that gas and dust around it. So first the gas and dust is, ver the dust is very dark, blocks out everything. Once it illuminates, we then get emission due to hydrogen gas. Right? We looked at that when we did the lab on spectra. We saw hydrogen had that nice strong red line. That's what we see here. We're seeing that red line is very prominent in hydrogen gas. When we look at the bluer, the dustier areas are just light dust, dust grains now reflecting light off, off from that star that is formed. And we'll see bluer areas from that. We'll see redder areas from the emission from hydrogen. And we'll see dark areas from where the dust is still too dense. The stars have not yet formed or still in the process of forming. It's a, pro it's a process that will take hundreds of thousands to a million years to form a star. From the time the dust cloud starts, collapses, and we actually get a star that has formed, it'll take, it can take you know, several hundred thousand years to go through that process. And that's what we'll look at in a coming chapter in much more, much more detail. But in the meantime, they make some of the prettiest uh, images that we can get. Uh, just take pictures of stars. They're not all that pretty. They all look like little points of light. That's about it. Uh, but when we start looking at things like p images of the planets that we've been looking at in class, images of some of the nebulae, and then galaxies, which we'll talk about even later, we get some of the prettier images that we get to see. So that's what we're looking at today. Are there any questions? No, no, no. Alrighty. Well, let's go back to the planets then and try to finish these up. We'll get through most of them today. In fact, we'll probably get through, all, we'll get through all the planets today for sure and then start on the little, the other stuff in the outer solar system as well. Uh, we looked at, this is where I finished up last time and I'm going to go through the first couple slides here are just showing you, are just showing you the images of the, some images of each of the planets. So this is Jupiter. This is what Jupiter would actually look like. Uh, images taken doesn't tell me, but as most likely, it looks like a Voyager image. So Voyager actually flew out to Jupiter and was able to get a number of close-up images of the surface and allow us to really see in much more detail than we can see here from Earth. You know, even our big telescopes on Earth, even the Hubble Space Telescope in orbit, we're able to see a lot more detail when you're actually, even though it's much smaller instruments, when you're right there. You're right there at the planet. And we see Jupiter has different banding structures in its atmosphere. Again, we're looking at just the atmosphere of the planet. There is no surface there to, go, to land on or anything. This is the real thick upper atmosphere and we see bands lighter and darker. A very dark band here, a very light band here, sort of patterned across the surface. You can see that kind of structure even with a small telescope. You won't be able to see near as much detail, of course, as you can see here, but you'll be able to see, in fact, let me go back the previous picture. You can sort of see that there's some hint of that here. There are some darker bands going across, some lighter areas and darker areas striped across. So we can get some idea of that even with a relatively small, small telescope. Some of the other features that we see we'll look at in a little bit more detail. Jupiter does have a great storm, the great red spot that has been visible on it since we've had a telescope powerful enough to be able to see it. A number of other little storms that come and go as well. But the Great Red Spot's been there since the 1600s. So hundreds of years that storm has been, has been present. And we'll look at that in a little bit more detail coming, coming up.
So Jupiter. Now Saturn, on the other hand, got the beautiful ring system that makes it stand out. And, but you notice that its structure on its, in its atmosphere is nowhere near as distinct. It's much more bland than Jupiter's. Jupiter was very distinct, real bright, real dark areas. Saturn's, on the other hand, you can definitely see them still. You can see that there's some different colored banding in there. But they don't stand out the way they did on Jupiter. Saturn is twice as far away from the sun as Jupiter. So it's a lot colder and it has a lot more hazy atmosphere up above it that makes it look very, very hard, it makes it very hard to see deeper down. So the bands are there. Everything that we see in Jupiter is really there in Saturn. It's just hidden below the atmosphere. You've got a hazy atmosphere up above it that kind of blurs it out. So it's kind of like looking through a fog. You know, everything's still there, but you can see it, you can make out outlines, but you really can't see anything in great detail that you normally would without it. There you go. So Saturn, of course, does have the rings. So uh, sets of rings actually around it. The rings are not a solid sheet. They're actually made up of many billions of individual little particles orbiting around Saturn. Things that are, you know, pea-sized or bigger than a knuckle-sized, hand-sized, up to maybe a per-person-sized pieces. But they're all very little tiny pieces and many billions of them all orbiting around Saturn that make up these make up these rings and the ring patterns. And we'll look at those in a little bit more detail as well uh, in the, when, when you get to chapter 8. Um, Uranus, boy we're getting further out, it's getting more and more bland. There's not, much, there's not much surface features to see there. That is the actual coloring of it. They do, these Uranus and Neptune both have a very blue-green color to them. Uh, there are a couple structures. I don't know if you can make them out. There's a few little clouds, probably not too visible here. If you actually look at the slide image, you can see a little bit of structure right in there, but not a whole lot. Jupiter had a lot of stuff. Saturn even less. Uranus even less than that. The bluish color is due to the composition. Uh, Uranus and Neptune both have a lot of methane in their atmosphere. Methane is very, very good at absorbing red light. So. White light from the sun travels out to, the, out to Uranus, bounces off, strikes the surface. The, blue, the reds are absorbed, the oranges are absorbed, yellows are absorbed for the most part. What do you have left to come back to us? Blue and green. So th that's why this planet looks blue and green is because everything else is absorbed. All the other colors are absorbed by the methane, especially the redder colors, leaving much bluer light to come back to us. And that's typically how everything, how anything works. If anything has a specific color, that's the color that it doesn't like. That's what it's reflecting back to us. So if you're wearing a blue shirt, which I didn't happen to do, usually I'd have that, but if you're wearing a blue shirt, it's absorbing the red lights and reflecting the blues back to you. That's what Uranus and Neptune are doing because of what they're made up of, which is uh, methane in their atmosphere. They will look very blue colored. And we'll see this, that with Uranus, and we'll see the same thing with Neptune. Again, Neptune even bluer there, even bluer there. Uh, although we do start to get, even though we're getting further and further away from the sun, we're actually starting to see a few more features actually visible. Uh, Neptune, when Voyager flew by, had a great dark spot uh, to rival Jupiter's great red spot, another great storm in its atmosphere. It's gone now. We don't know whether it was how long it was there. We get telescopes from Earth, couldn't really see it. Hubble Space Telescope can. Some of the big telescopes now would be able to if it was still there. 
But we discovered it when Voyager flew out there. We had no way to detect that before. So we don't know if it was there for hundreds of years before or if it fo they form over tens of years or five years or a year. So we'll keep watching it. We'll be looking for, you know, when will another storm like that, that appear. But we do start to get a little bit more uh, features start to be visible again. And the coloring, again, same as with Uranus, it is very much that it is composed mostly of hydrogen and helium, but a big chunk of methane in there that absorbs all that red light, so it sucks all the red light out of the sunlight, reflecting us back just the blue. Now, let's go back and look at these, we'll go back and look at these each in a little bit more detail. When we look at Jupiter, there's a much uh, higher uh, zoomed in picture of part of Jupiter's surface. And you can see a lot more detail. You can see there are what we call zones and belts. Zones are the brighter areas. Belts are the darker areas. The zones are actually the cooler material that has come up from the surface and is released energy. So that was the cooler material up here. It's much higher up in the atmosphere. And the belts are lower down. That means when we're looking at Jupiter, it's not like looking at the surface of a, you know, a solid surface of a planet. We have things that are way up here and way, way real close, a closer to us and things that are much further away. So it's not that it's completely, you know, all smooth, like a big smooth ball. It really has some higher and lower areas that are present. And these are actually great uh, winds that are, are sort of like our, comparable to our high and low pressure systems. If you've ever taken a meteorology class, now you have high and low pressure systems. Jupiter has the same kind of thing. We all have high and low pressure. You know, high pressure here, low pressure here. Jupiter rotates so quickly. Takes it a little less than 10 hours to spin around once on its axis. We take 24. Jupiter, many times bigger than us, whips around in 10 hours. So it goes so fast that instead of those forming you know, little cells like they do here on Earth, they actually get whipped out into a very long band around the planet. So we get the zones and the belts. Zones, again, are the higher, le higher level. Belts are the lower. Belts are the dark ones. So a belt here and a zone here. And they kind of alternate as you go over the, go over the surface. That pattern stays pretty similar. That pattern has not changed from when we've looked at Jupiter uh, for about hundreds of years. Details have changed. Yes, there's little eddies and currents in the atmosphere. You can see some of those. Those will change. Little storms within the atmosphere will change. But the overall pattern of zones and belts has not changed. So we still have darker and lighter areas. That's still been, uh, been present for as long as we've known Jupiter. Now one thing that has changed is the great red spot. Uh, the great red spot, that's my next image here, I believe. There it is. There's the great red spot. Now you see uh, much more detail. You can really see all the storm kind of swirling, all the turbulence and swirling right around this great spot. This is a tremendous storm. So we think of a hurricane here on Earth as big, right? Well, there's Earth to scale. You know, it overwhelms the entire Earth, or it used to at least. The great red spot has been shrinking drastically over the last decade, couple decades. It used to be about two Earths in diameter or more than two Earths that could fit across it. It's now down to just less than one as of measurements earlier this year. So it's actually been shrinking and if it shrink, continues to shrink at the current rate, although that rate has been accelerating, 
it would, be, it would actually shrink to nothing in about 15, 20 years. Will that happen? I can't tell you. I don't know exactly what's going on there. Astronomers in general do not know exactly what's going on with the great red spot. Is it just weakening down and then will it pick up again? Or will it weaken down to nothing and fade out? And part of it is that we don't know how long a spot like that lasts. We don't know how long it's been on Jupiter. We detected it back in the 1600s. Was it there in the 1500s? Was it there 300 BC? Was it there 3000 BC? We didn't have technology to be able to see it. So we don't know whether this thing had lasted thousands of years or if it had formed around the time of the invention of the telescope. So we don't know how long these last. Until we have enough of them where we can watch a spot similar form and then die out and really do that for a number of them to really get to see how long these kind of things last. So we don't know what's going to happen to it, but astronomers are still carefully watching it. Uh, earlier, well, I should say about 80, 80 or so years ago, it was about 25,000 kilometers across. So big, much bigger than the Earth. Uh, now it's down to about 10,000. So it's cut its size in half, more than half. It's gone from 25,000 down to 10,000, and it continues to, to shrink. And those are the numbers I had as of May of this year. So just a couple months ago, it had shrunk to its smallest size that had ever been detected. It's now down to, to this scale. This is an older image. It's down to about that size. So it's shrunk down very significantly in the last, in the last few years. It would be a, a cyclone type like a hurricane, I mean like a hurricane here. Not in a hurricane as in big rainstorms below, but the type of atmospheric disturbance would be, would be very similar to, to a hurricane swirling in the atmosphere. But, yeah? Would storms like this have lightning like they would be here? There would be light. You can get lightning on, on the other planets, so yes, you can, you can get lightning. Lightning is an electrical discharge between them. You wouldn't get the rain, right? Much too cold there. You're not going to get like water coming out of it. Uh, but you would be able to get lightning and discharges throughout all these, all of these planets, any of these planets, anything with a significant atmosphere. So you could see it on Venus, Jupiter, anything that has a real thick, real thick, and thick atmosphere. Good. Could it snow on these planets? Could it snow? I don't know if you could really get. I don't know if you could really get any snow on these. Certainly on the on some of the moons, you might be able to get ices. Maybe not water ice, maybe water ice to some extent, but also other types of ices. You know that you wouldn't want snowing here, like methane and ammonia, yeah, where it's much colder. Liquids, yeah. So you may be able to get that in Jupiter. It's going to get very, very hot. As you get too far down below this, it's going to go up to thousands of degrees. So it's going to be hotter than the surface of the sun. Once you get down deep into the atmosphere, but once you get down there, it will get that hot. So anything will be vaporized then. So you're not really going to get any snow as we know it. But perhaps some of the moons, like Titan with an atmosphere, you might be able to get something. You can certainly get rain. If it's colder in certain areas, you might be able to get some kind of snow out of it as well. Good. All right, well, let's look at the other atmospheres. I talked a little bit about Saturn already. Here's a couple images of Saturn. Really, Saturn and Jupiter are about the same in terms of composition. They're made up of hydrogen and helium. About 90% hydrogen, if you count the number of atoms, about 10% helium. That adds up to 100, right? 
So for the rounding errors in that is everything else, you know, less than a percent is everything else in the, in the atmosphere. So all the methanes and things and the iron and the rock that has to be present there that would have been around when the planets formed is all in that little tiny percentage. The vast majority of these are hydrogen and helium. But the reason again, we see Saturn with the rings and the reason we don't see the structure on the surface is because it is colder. The structures are there just like we saw on Jupiter. The zones and the belts are still there and you can see some sign of them. But again, you're looking through a haze. So you're trying to look at them through a haze and they're getting all, wa all the features are getting washed out. And you don't see near as much detail as you could. Even traveling to Saturn doesn't help. You're still looking through all that haze. So much thicker atmosphere up above that and a much cooler object because it's further away from the sun. So you don't get the temperatures that you need to form those zones and belts until you get further down. You've got a big haze of hydrogen and helium up above it that really washes out all of the features. And that's what you see here on the bottom. You can really see how there's, you can barely see any kind of features in that, in that at all. You do see the rings and we'll look at rings in a little more detail coming up. Uh, rings are common to all of the Jovian planets. Every single one of them has rings. Uh, we won't, we'll go through Saturn's, we'll talk about a little bit more in a coming chapter. But Jupiter has a very thin ring. Uh, Uranus has a relatively nice set of very thinner rings than Saturn. And Neptune has some rings and partial rings around it. So they're beautiful on Saturn and until the late 1970s, that's the only planet we knew of with rings. But since then, in the late 70s, we discovered that Jupiter and Uranus had rings uh, relatively close together within a year or two. And Neptune, when we finally visited Neptune, once we found three planets with rings, it was something that we were looking for when the Voyager probe got there back in uh, 1989. So let's look at Uranus here. Again, very little detail. But we can measure the rotational period, how long it takes it to spin around once by looking for some of these little storms. And you can see them here, here, and then vary at the edge there. You can watch those orbiting around and you can measure how long it takes Uranus to orbit once, to orbit, to rotate once. So I told you that Jupiter took about 10 hours to spin once. It's the fastest of all the planets. Maybe the largest, it's also by far the fastest of them. Saturn takes a little bit more than 10 hours. Uranus and Neptune are slower by those standards. They take about 13, 14 hours to spin once. Still much, much faster than the Earth. We take 24 hours. They've, wrote, they've spun around twice almost in that time. But they're also much larger. You could fit you know, many Earth, several Earths across Uranus and many Earths across Jupiter. But they're still rotating so much faster. Here's an image that shows a little bit of the rings, depending on how you're looking here in the infrared. Uh, so we can actually start to see the rings. And I'll, again, we'll look at those. Chapter 8 actually talks about the rings and the moon. So that's why I'm really just looking at the planets a little bit, skimming through those right now. And we'll look in more detail about rings and moons coming up in the last chapter of this, of this section. But that's how we can actually measure the rotation rates of these planets. We can look at Jupiter, we can watch the great red spot. We can see it right in the middle of Jupiter. We can wait until it comes around again. We know it's a little less than 10 hours, but we can, so we can watch and measure how that is. So that's how we can measure their, one of the ways we can measure their rotation, how fast they're spinning. Neptune has some similar storms. This is the great dark spot. 
This was taken by the Voyager 2 spacecraft, the only craft to actually fly by Neptune. And there is the storm and zoomed in. You can see this is a very dark storm here. That was detected in 1989 when Voyager flew by Neptune. And it's disappeared now. Once Hubble telescope was up there, about a decade later, Hubble would, once it was all set, took images, took images of the planets as well as lots of other things. And no sign of the great dark spot. So do we catch it just at the very end of its life? When Voyager flew by, if it had flown by a couple of years later, we might have missed it altogether. Might have had no images of it. But maybe happened to get it. And one of the other things, again, we don't understand these storms. You know, we don't understand our atmosphere completely. right? Try to predict what weather is going to be like two days from now or a week from now. Forget it, right? The closer you get, the better you can do. Try to understand the weather on another planet is even harder. So try to figure out what's going to happen there and how long this storm will last. We're not going to know until we can watch another storm form and another storm die. And we can get some ideas just as we do with hurricanes. right? We map a hurricane out in the Atlantic and we get a projection of where it's going to go. Usually it's relatively, they've got a pretty good idea of what it's going to do from past experience. Every once in a while, of course, one decides to do something completely different for some reason. But they can usually get a pretty good track once we've been able to look at enough of these storms we'll be able to understand them better. But if they last hundreds of years and only form occasionally, then we're not, it's going to take us a long, long time to be able to look at you know, lots, of, lots and lots of storms. We get to look at you know, what two dozen or so hurricanes every season, plus out in the Pacific, so a couple dozen, a few dozen hurricanes every year. Here we're looking at one over decades is all we've been able to see. And we still don't know how long it lasted. We know that it was gone when Hubble went up. We know that it was there when Voyager went by. We don't know when it formed. We don't know when it We don't have any of that information in between because we don't have the ability to see that much detail on Neptune in the meantime, either before Voyager or after Voyager and before Hubble. So it has completely disappeared. The great red spot might be going that way. It is, again, shrinking very, very rapidly and, and it's, it's, acceler it's, its shrinkage is actually accelerating. So it's actually going faster and faster every every year. So could be gone you know, in a matter of a decade or so if it continues that, which may be what happened here. This may have been shrinking drastically and then all of a sudden it just, it just winked out. Alright, so again, just skimming through this, I'm trying to give you a little bit of a taste for each of the planets. I don't have the time, we don't have the time to go through them in great detail, otherwise we'll never get to talk about the stars and the galaxies which are part of, which are really the, the meat of this course. Uh, today we're going to look at, this time we're going to look at moons and rings and plutoids. So all the rest of the objects in the solar system, a lot of the little bits and pieces that are out there. I've mentioned rings. I've talked about some of the moons of the different planets. I talked about our own moon. This is going to refer mostly to the moons of the outer solar system, the moons further out. We're going to look at some of those. And then the plutoids. We did all the planets. We didn't talk about Pluto uh, because Pluto is now classified as a dwarf planet. So we will talk about that here. Uh, there's a couple of dwarf planets. It's not the only one. There's actually several now that are classified, several, but a handful of objects that are actually classified as dwarf planets now. And we'll talk about that. So let's look first, start, with the in, start further in in the solar system, and let's look at Jupiter. Uh, Io is, very, is the closest object, the closest large moon to Jupiter, and it is the most volcanically active object in the solar system. 
It has more, volca more volcanoes on its small surface than we have on the Earth. It's actually about the size of our moon, very close to the size of our moon. It orbits Jupiter at about the same distance, plus or minus a little bit, but pretty close to the same distance that our moon orbits us. But Jupiter is a heck of a lot bigger than we are. So remember what the moon did to us with tides? It pulled and it stretched the water a little bit. Now imagine you've got this moon here and you've got great big Jupiter pulling on it. Jupiter is not just able to pull on the water, but Jupiter is actually able to stretch the planet, or the moon in this case. So Jupiter can actually stretch the planet a little bit. Not going to stretch it into a, in a long, long tube or anything, but it can stretch it a little bit in one direction. As it rotates and moves around, it's going to then stretch another side. So you're constantly needing this planet. Playing with clay or Play-Doh or something, right? They're nice and hard when you start with them, but if you keep kneading them and squeezing them over and over again, in this case for billions of years, they warm up and then they get much more pliable. So it warms up and it heats up the material inside and melts it inside and it has all, these volcan all this volcanic activity. Again, more active volcanoes than we really see here on Earth. This is a picture of one of them. This is actually a volcano erupting off the side of the surface there. That's the edge of the moon. There you can see the little plume there. Here you can see it enlarged in a little bit more detail. Jupiter is just very, very strong gravitationally and able to make, to really, really turn this planet essentially inside out. It's heating it up so much that the innards keep coming out and keep reworking the surface. And that's why if you look at Io, it's the one object in the solar system with a solid surface that has no craters. Even the Earth. The Earth has a handful of craters. Any of the other objects we look at will have a couple, at least a few craters, if not you know, more. Earth may have you know, hundreds to a thousand. Venus may have a thousand or so. Moon and Mercury, we give up counting because there's so many. All the other solid objects in the solar system, from little teeny tiny ones like asteroids up to the bigger objects, have craters except for Io. Io is constantly resurfaced. These volcanoes are constantly erupting and were a crater to form, it's very quickly wiped out by new eruptions. So the only way you'd be able to find a crater is you know, in the first hundreds of years to thousands of years after it formed. Very quickly, its weathering effects, even though it has no atmosphere, are much quicker than those here on Earth. So even though this is the size of our moon, it is actually the most volcanically active object in the solar system. And again, all that is due to Jupiter's tides stretching. Stretching and pulling that planet and heating it up inside. Otherwise, if you took this moon further away from Jupiter, it would just be a cold, dead rock. It's Jupiter that is really causing that. You'll note in the text here that it mentions Europa too. And that's because Jupiter is pulling on it, but Europa, is, the next outer moon, is moving around. It kind of tugs it and twirls it. And between those two, it gets caught in a little a gravitational tug of war. So it's just constantly being twisted and turned inside and causes it to heat up so much that we get all of this volcanic activity and give us something very reddish, yellow, sulfur, sulfur colored, lots of sulfurs and things from the interior. Uh, the moon itself is really a big dense rock. It's just a ball of rock. Anything lighter that was ever there, ices, gases, are long since vaporized out into space. It's as small as our moon. If you heat things up and erupt them out, they're going to disappear off into space relatively quickly. So this is essentially just a big ball of rock now, a big volcanic rock. Now as you go a little further out, 
we have Europa. Europa, not no craters, it's got a couple craters, a handful. It's pretty close to Io as the next most as the next most empty surface. But its surface instead, it's not quite as close to Ju to Jupiter. It's a little bit further away. It's a little bit smaller moon. It's a little bit smaller than our own moon. But it still has all of those tidal forces. They're not quite as strong as they were on Io. The further away you get from Jupiter, the less those tidal forces become. But it's still enough to heat it up inside. And what we find with Europa is that its surface is actually completely made up, almost completely made up of water. Not just ice, because I talk about lots of different kinds of ices, but it's really water ice. So Europa, on this thing that's smaller than our own moon, actually has more water than our planet. Right? You've got to remember, when we look at our planet, we think it is two, there's three quarters of it covered in water. That's only the surface layer. If you go down five miles, or so, maybe a little more, there's no water. The water is all gone. So all of that is right on the very, very crust, very thin crust, paper thin crust of the surface of the Earth. Europa, on the other hand, has water, not only a big thick layer of ice, hundreds of miles deep, but below that it has a great ocean of water. So there's actually liquid water on Europa, maybe in Europa would be a better term, under the surface. No atmosphere to keep liquid water on the surface. You can only have frozen water there. But down below that, hundreds of miles below that surface, we've been able to make measurements that show that there is a great ocean of liquid water there. And again, more water than we have on our entire planet is present on Europa. It's liquid because it's heated up by the same kinds of tidal forces that heat up your Io. Io, they're a lot stronger. It's a lot closer. Here, they're still hot enough that it can warm up the inside and let liquid water be present. So it's not just a big solid ball of ice, it's actually a big solid ball of ice with a liquid core around it, liquid core of water. Those forces also crack that ice, right? Ice cracks a lot easier than rock. So any craters that form are also wiped out as that cracks, then you know, ice kind of, ice or slush maybe flows out and fills in anything. So any craters that would form would be wiped out relatively quickly. There are a couple craters that are known on Europa, but not very many. So these are some of the very youngest surfaces. They've been changed very quickly. So that's what the images zooming in here are looking at more and more detail at just kind of where the ice, how the ice has flowed, where these little cracks are coming, how these, the surface is just constantly cracked. You can almost see it looking at the overall picture here. You can see all the different cracks going across caused by the tidal forces of Jupiter. So Jupiter is pulling on Europa just like it was pulling on Io, just not quite as strong because Europa is a little bit further away. Okay. Get a little bit further out, we're going to get closer to a things that look a little bit more familiar to us. Ganymede, this is the largest of the moons in the entire solar system. Uh, it is actually larger, well, larger than Pluto, but then our own moon is larger than Pluto, so that's not saying a whole lot, but it's actually larger than the planet Mercury. So Ganymede is actually bigger in size than Mercury. Not more mass there. Ganymede is made up of ices and rocks rather than rock and primarily metal as Mercury is, but it's very uh, similar in size. Actually, diameter-wise, it's even bigger than Mercury is. This looks a little bit more similar to what, we're, what we've been looking at with our moon. 
You see crater, you start to see craters, impacts around there. The only difference is instead of forming at our distance from the sun, about one astronomical unit, it formed at Jupiter's distance, about five astronomical units away. So it's five times further away. It's a lot cooler. There's a lot more ice there. So this moon is not made up, this moon, Ganymede, is not made up of rock like our own moon. It's actually made up of some rock and some ice. So if you could land on this surface, it's a very icy surface. Again, it's much cooler out there. That ice will stay nice and easy. But you do get to see some impact craters as you zoom way in down here. Taking that region, there's lighter and darker areas just like we see on our own moon. If you zoom in and look at very smaller areas, we do get some impact craters. You also do get some of these kind of ice flows areas. So lots of craters have been wiped out. Because you do get some areas that have warmed up a little bit and where instead of rock flowing, lava flowing like it did on the moon, you had ice flowing. You had ice that would ooze up, you know, a slushy mixture that would, moose, lose, that would ooze up from inside. And you can kind of see how that flowed, perhaps, across the surface. And again, that, like the lava on the moon, that would have wiped out any craters that had been there before. So, a few new craters have formed since then, but not, not a lot of them. So it is nowhere near as pockmarked as our moon. We'll see when we get to the outermost of the major moons of Jupiter. These first four we're looking at are the ones that Galileo saw through his telescope we'll see even more and more craters as we get further and further out. But it's similar to what we talked about with our moon. It's got some higher areas that have more craters. It's got some darker areas which are much flatter and lower and fewer craters. But instead of rock, it's actually ice that was being, that was using it. Callisto, now if we look at the images here, now we really start to think this looks like our moon. Lots of craters here, craters, getting to the point where we're getting craters on top of craters, on top of craters, overlapping. We're getting lots and lots of craters. We've now gone from something that is very close to Jupiter, about the distance of our moon. Io is very close, it whips around every little over a day and a half. It only takes a day and a half to orbit. Our moon takes almost a month to zip around us, Earth once. This moon, same distance, goes around in about a day and a half, a little less than two days. So it really is whipping around there. Now we're out to something that takes two weeks, leisurely two weeks to orbit around Jupiter at many times the distance of our own moon. And the gravitational forces, the tidal forces of Jupiter are much less. And we start to see a lot more craters, not because it's gotten hit more by anything. Every single one of those moons probably had roughly the same number of impacts over its history. The reason we see more craters is it doesn't have the activity. It doesn't have any ice flows or lava flows to come out and wipe out those craters. So we see the ones, not only the ones that formed in the last few million years or 100 million years, but we still see the ones that formed 2 billion years ago, 3 billion years ago, 4 billion years ago. They're still there because there's been no uh, activity to wipe them out. So they're actually still present. So there's no this has plate activity, no volcanic activity, nothing like we saw on Io at all. All right, so those are the four moons. Those are the four, those Io, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto. Those are the four moons that Galileo saw and mapped out. Jupiter has many more moons. I'm not going to go into detail about all of them, going to go into any detail about all of them. Those are the four major ones. If you're able to see Jupiter with your scopes, you can actually, you'd actually be able to see those moons. Obviously, no images like this. That you need something, you need to actually be out there. 
but you could actually get uh, actually see those dots and if you watch them over time you could see them see that they were changing position. Yes ma'am. That's a major impact there. You can kind of see where it had a large impact there. And if you notice, you got all these little rings around it. That would be like you're smashing something into ice. So imagine, it's a very icy surface. It's not a rock surface. But if you smash something into an ice surface, it kind of shatters, almost like the patterns you get on, on glass or anything like that. It gets a little round concentric pattern. And that's what that's showing. That's a very large impact that occurred. You know, how long ago? Well, like the impacts on the moon were three billion years ago. It could have been billions of years ago. But that's just a very, one of the very large impacts on Callisto. Anything else? All right, one more large moon is Titan. Titan, we've known for a long, long time that it actually has an atmosphere. Probably the object in the solar system with the most similar atmosphere to the Earth. It is mostly made up of nitrogen and argon. If you've ever taken a class, you know, an earth science class or anything in high school or a geology class that studied the atmosphere, meteorology, you know that Earth's atmosphere is mostly nitrogen and then oxygen and then argon. Those are the, those are the three most common elements. Well, Titan has two of those. No oxygen, meaning no living creatures on it that are no living plant matter or animal matter that would give you oxygen. But it does have a very thick and dense atmosphere it's a little bit higher pressure than the Earth's, about one and a half times, about 50% bigger, thicker than the Earth's atmosphere. So if it had an atmosphere just like the Earth and you could go there without a spacesuit and breathe, you'd feel, this, you'd feel extra pressure. You'd feel constantly being, everything's pushing in on you because you're only used to a certain level of pressure. It would be more like you know, being deep under the water where you feel that extra pressure pushing on you. It would be the same kind of thing there. It wouldn't be the crushing pressure you'd get on Venus where it's a hundred times what the Earth's atmosphere is pushing on you. But one of the problems that does is having that atmosphere makes it impossible for us to study the surface. Here's a nice image taken by, and I don't know if that was taken by Voyager or one of the later probes, uh, the Cassini, but that was only about 4,000 kilometers away, about 2,500 miles away. So we were right out there. Can't get, can't get too much closer. Well, we did, but you can't get too much closer and you still can't see anything. It's just a big, hazy surface. So it has an atmosphere not like the Earth's, where you can see through parts of it, right? If it's not cloudy, you can look down from the Earth, from space, and you can actually see. You can see the continents, you can see the oceans, you can actually see the surface of the Earth. Here you can't. You're not going to wait for the clouds to break. They're permanent. They're always going to be a complete haze like that, just like Venus. You're never going to wait for the clouds to break on Venus. Hey, we can finally see the surface. It's not going to happen. Same thing on Titan. Those clouds, that's a permanent haze on the planet. So we have, you know, if we really want to see what the surface looks like, we've got to get down below those clouds and land on it. That's going to be the only way we're going to do it. Same as with Venus. We got the Venera spacecraft that went down, landed on the surface, and were able to get images. Well, we sent the uh, Cassini spacecraft, which has now been at Saturn for, what is it, pushing 10 years now, I believe? it's been out there for quite a while, actually carried a probe that, that had a lander to land on Titan. So this is the only object in the outer solar system that's ever been landed on. Only one of them. We've never landed on any of the moons of Jupiter. Right? We can at least see them. We didn't need to land on them. It might be nice to, to get samples and things. But this is the only one we could not see. So we actually had a lander to go. And I have an image there. This is actually the Huygens lander. 
uh, took these images actually from the surface. So it landed, it went to Saturn, had a lander that went down and actually went through the atmosphere, landed on, soft landed on the surface, and was able to get images. This I believe was, uh, this was as it's coming down. You sort of get an idea here, not the clearest image, you get some of these little tributaries. Looks like riverbeds here on the Earth. And that's what we believe that is on Titan, that you actually have liquid flowing, not water. Temperature on Titan is a little bit chillier than we ever get here on Earth, like a couple hundred degrees below zero. So it's really cold. You're not going to have any liquid water, but you can have things like methane. Methane that's a gas here on Earth is actually it's so cold that it, it is now a liquid and you can actually get methane rain forming little rivers into lakes, into seas. And you can have methane cycle on Titan, much like you have it here, have a water cycle here on Earth. Now, the other image is actually after it's landed. So this is as it was coming down, sort of getting an airplane-like view as it's coming down, taking images. The other one is after it landed. After it landed, you're able to see, it looks a lot like the other images I've shown you. Doesn't look that different than Venus, doesn't look that different than Mars. Uh, very you know, rock-strewn surface. You've got lots of little rocks and boulders there. Didn't land close enough to any of the uh, methane or rivers to be able to see those. But it doesn't look that different. Most of the terrestrial planets look quite similar. We actually see things that look a lot like you know, desert areas on the Earth. No cactus growing there. No little jackrabbits hopping across the screen. But it looks really about like the Earth does. It doesn't look all that different. All the terrestrial planets look about the same. So we've landed, actually landed on, now what? We've landed on the Moon, Mars, Venus, and Titan are the only four objects other than the Earth we've actually landed on. We've explored a lot more, but we've landed on those four major objects. We've also landed, we've got a lander coming up on a comet later this year. So we're actually going to land on a land, soft land on a comet. We've crashed things into a comet, but we've never actually soft landed on a comet yet. And that will be coming up later this year if all, if all goes well. Okay, the last of the large moons, really big moons, which are the ones I'm really covering here, where there's four around Jupiter, one around Saturn, and one around Neptune. Neptune, just to keep everybody fully confused, has the large moon Triton, not to be confused with Titan. So. Titan. Titan is around Saturn. That's the one with the atmosphere. Triton with Neptune, uh, makes more sense if you do the mythology, uh, is actually the one around Neptune. It is interesting and it's the only large moon, meaning remember there's a hundred, there's pushing 200 moons in the solar system. Some of them are little tiny rocks. Some of them are not, you know, more than less than a mile across. But of the big moons, the ones that are the size of our moon, every single one goes around in the same direction. And that means if you look at it from what we call our north, they all go around counterclockwise. So they all go in the same direction. Triton doesn't. Triton goes around clockwise. It's the only large moon that goes around backwards. It also has an active surface as well up here with very few craters, but there's a few. But the big thing, again, why would it go around backwards? We think that something happened early on in Neptune's history as these moons were forming. And perhaps Triton, there was a large impact or something, and Titan, Triton's orbit got completely screwed up. So that's why it's the only one that's going around backwards. It would not naturally form that way. Any computer models that we have to tell us how 
moons form, always have them going around the planet just the same way the planet's spinning. Now it doesn't make sense for the planet to spin one way and the moon to orbit around the other way. Right? Doesn't, doesn't seem to make logical sense to us. So we think something, something unusual, something it may have been some large impact that completely disrupted it. Maybe Neptune had a larger moon system. Triton happened to be kept and other ones may have gotten thrown out into space. Originally, a while ago, it's thought that's where Pluto might have come from, but they've sort of uh, gone away from that, of that theory now. On the surface, it is a very active surface. It's very close to Neptune, so it has tidal forces heating it up from there. It also has a greenhouse effect that works on it. Not an atmosphere, but it has an icy greenhouse effect and that the ice can absorb a lot of the heat from the sun and build up some heat internally. And therefore, we get geysers on Neptune. Right? We get geysers here out in Yellowstone. Water heats up below the Earth's surface and erupts out. We're way out at Neptune now. We're 30 times the Earth's distance from the sun. So instead of getting geysers of water, you get geysers of nitrogen. So it's so cold that nitrogen is frozen. That's really getting cold. You're getting down to not, not liquid nitrogen, but frozen nitrogen. You're getting to really, really cold temperatures. But when you heat them up a little bit, it doesn't take too much, you're actually able to erupt those out. And we get little geysers that have actually been observed and give us some of the, you know, reworking some of the surface features. We still get a few craters on it, but not, not a whole lot. And I think, yes. I'm going to stop there so I can do rings. And on Friday, we'll do the rings. I'll talk about rings of the planets, and we'll talk about uh, Pluto and the dwarf planets. So we'll go through all of that. And I'll talk, we'll do that on Friday as well as our, as well as our lab. Questions? Alrighty. Have a good day. I also hope, I'm starting on your article reviews. I hope to have those back for you Friday. Yours, those are the next thing I'm grading for any of my classes. So I should have those back for you on Friday.